So, who in here likes to work? Raise your hand. Who in here likes to work? Okay, working is simply a way of life. It's a blessing from God. While King Solomon eventually became disillusioned with the vanity of this world, he would say repeatedly throughout Ecclesiastes, it's a theme throughout, but this is one version of it. He says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. You know, often, even as we get older, our hobbies are work, right? (laughs) Gardening, wrenching on cars. I just see Keith sitting out here. Woodworking, art even. You know, it's all work, really, if you get down to it. But we enjoy those things. When I was a young child, I hated to work. Work was the worst possible thing you could do with your time. <laughs> you know, I'd rather play sports, or, you know, do, play football in the park with my friends, ride my bike, or terrorize the local pool. But then I became a little bit older, and I wanted stuff. You know, I wanted to go to the arcade. I wanted to, like, you know, just keep putting quarters in those machines. That's how we used to have to do it back then, Jackson. So we didn't have... (laughs) So so I wanted to be able to go to the arcade. I wanted to buy candy. I wanted to buy that new pair of bell-bottom corduroy Levi's, you know. I wanted stuff. And so I went and got a paper route. That was one of my first jobs. And I lived in an inner-city apartment complex, and it was up and down the stairs and doing all these apartments and... and, uh, you know, when that, when that wasn't providing enough money, I would literally grab a bucket out of the kitchen, some dish soap and a sponge, and I would walk around to people's houses outside the apartment complex and say, hey, you know, knock on the door. I'll wash your car for you. You know, can I use your hose and your water and all that? There was even times I went to people's house, I knocked on the door and with nothing and just said, I'll mow your yard for 10 bucks. And they'd say, yeah. i say, well, where's your mower? Yeah. <laughs> and I would use their mower to, use, to mow their yard. It's amazing how many people say, yes, yeah, right there. Just start it up. And it actually worked. But I learned that while work wasn't cool at all, it was at least a way for me to get what I wanted. And I've worked ever since, often for the same reasons. But for those who claim the name of Christ, what is work? And before I get too far into this, I mean, this is something that God has really, you know, I know I'm up here talking to you, but this is something God has really convicted me of this week as far as some of the things we're going to talk about today. So I hope that you understand I'm coming from a place of um, conviction uh, on my, in my own life and in some ways that I've fallen short. But um, so that's the disclaimer out of the way. And if we want to put that first slide up. The, the kind of the key verse that I want to look at today is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. This is a famous verse. I'm sure a lot of you know this verse, but I'll just read it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I almost want to read that again, but I'm going to just leave that, leave that up there, and you guys can kind of look at it. And this is, like I said, it's kind of a seminal verse, right? This is the verse that Martin Luther read and was convicted by 
and was the, was the impetus for him to go and nail his 95 thesis to that big imposing door that began the Protestant Reformation. For by grace we have been saved. He was a devout monk who had lived this legalistic life and knew that it wasn't working, that it wasn't fixing what was wrong with him. And this is, we are a result today of the Protestant Reformation, the Calvary Chapel movement. And so this is kind of that key verse that um, began all that. It definitively states there is absolutely nothing we can do to earn our salvation. We are dead in sin, and only Christ can raise us to life in him. It is a gift in every sense, a gift. And there's so many other supporting verses of this doctrine in the Scripture. This is one. It's a, it's a, it's a concept in the Latin referred to as sola fide. It means faith alone. And they had all these, you know, there was sola scriptura, which means our authority comes from Scripture alone. But this idea, this doctrine of sola fide, faith alone, is what saves us. That's a settled issue. It doesn't mean people still won't fight about that. <laughs> There's still, uh, you know, arguments about this, this issue. But the problem, I think, in the modern um, Protestant church oftentimes is we are so dedicated to this belief that we kind of we discount verse 10. Verse 10 says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by works, but we're created in his image for good works. It's the exact same word. We're not saved by works, it's the same word. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What I find interesting to to kind of provide reference for, for this idea, a lot of people jump right to James without really considering this just the second part of this verse. It, that's really interesting to me, too, because you're referencing Martin Luther. He was so dedicated to sola fide, this idea of faith alone, that he really hated the, the book of James. You can read about it. He didn't, it, was such a, it was such an issue for him because, it, because of that famous scripture, faith without works is dead. For as the body, as it, as it is, you know, the, the actual verse, James 2.26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead... So also, bless you, so also faith apart from works is dead. And on the surface, these appear to be competing verses, yet really they perfectly complement each other. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Essentially, what that's saying is he crafted us once we're saved. Okay, let's just, you know, in his image to continue his work. Does that make sense? When we look at our Father and we look at Jesus, we see they are all about work. The word for work or works is used pervasively in the New Testament. It's this word ergon, ergon. And it's used over 170 times in 158 verses in just the New Testament. Um, every one, and it's the word that's used in those verses we just talked about, every one of Paul's epistles are replete with this word. Another companion word, basically it's another tense of ergon, it's this working, 
as opposed to works. So it's just another tense, but it's basically the same idea, the same word, is used another 49 times. I guess I'm kind of a numbers person, but so we come to a total of 219 uses in the New Testament of that word. Don't glaze over yet. There are, there are only 260 chapters in all of the New Testament. So we have 219 uses in 260 chapters. So do you think God has something to say about work? It's in almost every single chapter of the New Testament. And not always positively, but it's this idea that we're constantly dealing with, right? What does God have for me to do? What is my work here? What is my role here? So, the Gospel of John is also just packed with examples of Jesus himself using this word. And I would encourage you, just for the Gospel of John, to do a word search on work. And all these times where Jesus is just talking about it over and over and over again... One verse, John 5, 17. And I just love the, the simplicity of this one. But it says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. I'm working. That's what Jesus says. John 17, 4. And this is that great prayer that he's praying to God for his disciples, for us today even. I glorified you on earth, speaking of the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, there's some negative uses, too, like I said. Um, John 3.19, and this is in that conversation to Nicodemus about being born again. And he says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Matthew 23.3, and this is in the context of he's speaking about the religious leadership of the day, and he says, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach and do not practice. So those works can even kind of have this evil or hypocritical kind of connotation, right? Um, so what's the difference? What's the difference in these uses? The difference, simply put, is whether the work we're about, the job we have, is crafted by ourselves, for ourselves, or whether, as we see in Ephesians, it is the work that God prepared beforehand that we are walking in. Is it, as, is it of us and for us, or is it for God and for others, and of God? So, many of us, myself included, as I disclaimed at the beginning, want to craft our own life. We want to define what God's work is for us, what God's will is for us, what our job description is. And we miss out on the true blessings that our good Father intends when we lay down our lives unconditionally. And like I said, I think that's just, we're, we're kind of taught that our whole life, right? You can, the big phrase today is you can be whatever you want to be if you just put your mind to it, if you put your work in. And that's, there's a degree of just, that's just our culture. That's kind of the American dream, in a sense. The Christian version of that, you can be whatever God wants you to be. There's nothing impossible with God. And um, that's, the, that's the truth of our, of our life in, in, in a spiritual sense. So I just kind of was thinking about this in terms of getting a new job and what hoops you have to jump through. You're totally at their mercy. Has anybody in here had to go get a new job recently? 
had to apply or fill out applications or anything like that. And um, I'm going to use my son as an example because that's always fun. <laughs> my kids, they love it. They love when I do that. So <laughs> my son just got a new job at the Royal Gorge Bridge. So yeah, congratulations. So for the, for the summer, right? So um, he had to fill out an application, do a drug test, go to orientation. I think they did some level of background check on him. And they sent him home with a big bag full of new clothes with the Royal Gorge logo on them and, and a new hat. And they gave him his schedule and a job description. But now imagine my son, like, or, or any of us, we just had this idea, I just want to go get a job at the Royal Gorge Bridge. But you don't have time for all that stuff that I just said. You don't have time for an interview or application or any of that stuff. So you just go to the store and you buy some shirts that look kind of similar and you take them down to the embroiderer and you have the logo put on there and you get your hat and you get, get all, you know, you write yourself a job description and you write out your schedule and what hours you're willing to work and when you can show up and everything. And then you just show up up there one day and you walk in and, you know, start doing stuff and, you know, maybe start, you, I mean, just imagine like, and so, you know, maybe even you get to the point, like one of the things my son does, he, uh, he uh, drives a golf cart around, you know, so you grab a golf cart and you just start cruising around and waving to people and everything and maybe, maybe you work really hard. Maybe you work really hard that day and you get really dirty and you spend lots of hours and, and you get to know some people and you're hanging out in the lounge and, and uh, but then one day a manager's like, you know, I don't, I don't remember hiring you. What's your name again? You know, and, uh, and the logo looks a little off and, you know, you're like, and next thing you know, security's like taking you out and you've probably earned yourself a lifetime ban from the Royal Gorge Park. <laughs> so, but I mean, as, as absurd and crazy as that is, and we understand that, that's what a lot of people do in the American church today. You know, the big question, you know, I think we have to ask ourselves, what is the, God, what is the job God has prepared for me? Or put another way, how do I do the works of God? You know, not determining ourselves, like here's, now we all have certain gifts, we all have certain abilities, and we're not, you know, and I understand there's going to be that fitting in, but when we walk into it with a wall up and saying, here's what I'm willing to do, here's what I'm willing not to do, we can really miss out on what God has for our life. You know, a lot of you know me and my wife in children's ministry for all these, for, you know, the last couple decades, and uh, that, was not, that was not something that I ever wanted to do. I, when we first got together, I couldn't stand kids. <laughs> Literally. My own kid. No, I'm just... That was a, that, but that was something I never expected. And, you know, it was just something that God really... And it's been, it was such a blessing for us for so, for, for so long. But again, it's not a bad... But that, that's the question. What is the work? What is the job God has for me? You know, going to him and saying, what is it that you have for me? And it's not a bad question with the right heart. It's the right question with the right heart. But this question was also asked of Jesus by the religious leaders of the day. John 6, 28 and 29, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's very, very concise, right? This is the work of God. Now, contextually, 
he's saying this to the religious leaders after he had fed the 5,000 and done this great work and, and, and split the bread and fed all these people. And they come to him and they're like, do, do it again, do it again. Show us another sign. Prove to us you know, who you are. And we just want, we want this ongoing manna. We want, you know, and, and, they're, and they're testing him. And he uh, gives them this verse. This is the work of God. And, and again, it kind of reinforces that sola fide idea that all we have to do is believe, that that is the work of God. Now, the work of God, believe in him, that, it, that kind of encompasses more than just this idea of like, yeah, there might be aliens, there might be life on other planets, you know, there might be this, there might be Bigfoot, there might be that kind of belief. And that's the kind of belief I had of God for a long time. It was just a belief like every other belief, right? I believe that we, you know, just name your thing. But that belief in him is much more than that, to, in who he is, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And the religious leaders of this time were essentially asking, how can we save ourselves? How can we be like God? Jesus answers, to paraphrase and elaborate, we have to humble ourselves, confess him, and offer our lives to him. And like the apostles, leave everything and follow him, or we are not fit, we're not fit for employment. We failed the background check, and that carefully crafted resume we've compiled to impress and flatter is in the trash. That belief that Jesus is talking about is the door to what God has prepared for our lives. Meekness and faith are that narrow gate through which we must pass into God's perfect and preordained will. Then, and only then, we can fulfill the works that God has prepared beforehand. I think it's a grave mistake, especially in consideration of the other verses we just read, Ephesians and James, and the entire balance of the New Testament, to assume that this verse, where Jesus says, this is the work of God, that that's the end of our faith, that's the end of our walk. It's clearly the beginning. It's the beginning, right? It's not works that's the problem, it's whose work, his or ours, to elevate ourselves or to elevate him. Matthew 15, or excuse me, 5.16. This is in that great Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave, and it says, let, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Not so they'll think that we're great, but they'll give glory to God in heaven. Now, some of this stuff can start to feel a little bit abstract, right? And I'm a very visual learner. Um, any other visual learners? <laughs> a lot of people are visual learners. Um, there's another type of learning, too, that's like kind of a physical learning where you have to, you know, um, feel it in a way. And that's, ex that's how I am, a visual, you know, especially when it comes to sports. Show me a move, and I can imitate it. But just tell me, explain it to me, lecture me, and I, I can't really process that as much. I need to feel my body, you know, feel your body doing a certain thing to, to really get it. I need to see it and to feel it. And from all your hands, a lot of you may be the same way. I'm thankful that God's Word is so full of life examples that we can just look at, that we can look at and learn from. And when I think of someone, so we're talking about works, right? We're talking about the works of God. What are the works of God God has for us? And when I think about someone in Scripture who did the greatest, mightiest works for God, 
I'll just, who, who do you guys think of? I mean, other than Jesus, Jesus is not, okay, on the table. They did these incredible, like, just moving nature and just controlling this, these great, powerful works, things that were impossible. So, what'd you say? I saw you. I said, you're like Moses. It's Moses. Moses. But what was it? You know, we have all these autobiographies today of these rich and famous people and, and, and millions of copies sold, which makes them more rich and famous. And we just buy into it. But we want to know, we devour, you know, the, the, our society, we just devour these autobiographies. How did they get so rich? How did they get so famous? What was their secret? And uh, the secret to their success. So, I, you know, what was it about Moses? How was he able to subdue kingdoms? the kingdom of Egypt, the most powerful kingdom in the world at that time, command nature to receive the law of God, to lead millions through the wilderness and talk with God face to face. You know, I think the biggest clue to his success comes to us in Numbers 12, 3. And it says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Now, that's an amazing testimony in God's eyes, but not one that would make him a bestseller today. Not really an appealing trait in our culture. Certainly not a great leader, not a great politician. I mean, meekness, that's not what we need at all. We need action. We need confrontation. We need activism. That's what gets things done. Now, we know that Moses began his work as a man of action right? He was a prince. He was a powerful guy. You know, even in the um, uh, Josephus, the accounts of, of, of who Moses was, we get a little bit different picture. He was a great general. He was this big, strong, powerful, commanding guy. And he began his career as a man of action. He saw a problem. He saw the slavery of Israel. He began, how? With murder, right? He murdered a man. And then he got terrified, he ran off into the desert, was exiled, and the Jews stayed in slavery for another 40 years. I mean, that was an abject failure, wasn't it? I mean, that was a zero. And uh, the thing was, though, for that 40 years, after his incredible failure in the desert, living with his in-laws, a washed-up has-been, he learned servitude and he learned meekness. Until one day, at 80 years old, the hope of freeing God's people, a distant, faded memory, the Lord spoke to him and said, Take the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Then it says, Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And again, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, taking off his sandals, it speaks of vulnerability, of humility, and of walking in sensitivity. Hiding his face speaks of this godly fear of recognition of his own failures and unworthiness. And when he says, who am I, that's something that's echoed by so many saints of God who were used so incredibly. King David, as we've been going through in Psalms, by the Apostle Paul, who called himself the least of all apostles, and yet look at the great works that he did for God. Now, who am I is the opposite of I am who? 
That's who I am. I am. I am who. And that's the spirit of the world today. That's who. Now, I also think, you know, this is that account. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to him out of that burning bush that day. We know later on Jesus would say, before Abraham was, I am. The bush told Moses, I am is the one who sent you. And we see that connection there, that Christ is that one that was speaking to him now. And Moses is the type of the prophet who would arise to save Israel later on. Moses prophesied that. But when young, would Moses have removed his sandals? Would he have hid his face? Would he, in his princely pride and position, thought himself unworthy of God's call? Or would he have thought, yeah, yeah, it's my time now. It's my time. We're going to get some stuff done. I'm ready, Lord. Thank you. I'm ready to do this. And it's a different spirit. Now, we know he kind of took it to this extreme where he was in fear to where God, it says, became angry with him. And almost he had been broken so down that, he, that God had to build him back up. And, and it was, you know, there was this interaction there. I would encourage you to read that in the book of, in, in the book of uh, Exodus. But we know that God had prepared a great work for Moses. And now Moses was ready, for now he was completely empty. He had no agenda. He had no motives. Like I said, he lived with his, with his in-laws for all these years. Can you imagine how horrible that would have been? <laughs> and he's out a shepherd, and he's like, man, I remember Egypt. It was so sick. You know, we had chariots and everything. <laughs> And, uh, but he had been emptied of all that for all those years, and now he was ready for the work that God had for him when he was born, when his parents saved him from the Egyptian death sentence that he was under. Now, Moses, through meekness, had the closest relationship with God by a mortal man ever recorded. He performed the greatest works ever recorded in Scripture by a mortal man. Now, this account where he's described as the meekest man on earth, I just I want to read that. Um, it's Numbers 12, 1 through 13. And we're, man, we are, we're, we're there. We're in, good, we're in good shape. I think we can do that. So if you want to turn um, in your Bibles or on your phones or whatever to, to Numbers 12, 1 through 13. And I think this just gives a great example of, of why we see this in him at this point in his life. Uh, beginning, verse 1, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, the Lord said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid 
to speak against my servant Moses. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. Means she had leprosy. And Aaron said to Moses, O oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O oh God, please heal her, please. That's the only words in this whole thing that Moses even says. It's all the Lord is coming to his defense. And Moses is standing there with these false accusations, with no grudges, no hatred, no nothing. And the Lord's dealing with it. And the only thing he says, because he loves his sister and he's forgiven them, and he says, oh, Lord, please heal her. Don't let this happen to my sister, even though she's deserving of it. So Isaiah 66, 2 says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. We know that Moses, like I said, was a template for the prophet and the Messiah. And we can't help but see Jesus in this, in this account. The one who was led as a lamb to the slaughter, who uttered not a word in his defense, but who gladly committed himself to the Father's will, all for our sake. So what are the works that God has prepared for you? Ask, seek, knock, pray, and wait, and God will make it evident. But be assured, the work will only be revealed when your heart and spirit have been prepared, often through trials, and you come to him and the meekness that he treasures. We all have different works of God to do. God has something for each and every one of us. The reality is those things are usually right there. <laughs> They're right in front of your face. How we treat those closest to us, how we love others, they are right there in front of us. Some of us are going to be called to the corners of the earth, and there's going to be some big thing maybe like that, but not really for most of us. Most of us, God has us right where he wants us, right now preparing us for that thing. Be sensitive to that. See what God has right in front of your eyes. I'm so guilty of that. I'm so convicted by so many things in this, uh, in this study. But I heard this, listening to NPR. Please don't stone me. All you, all you conservatives, I was listening to NPR. There's a show on there. There is a worldwide sand shortage. Did you know that? Because concrete is becoming, it's, it's for concrete. Concrete is just being used so, so uh, um, pervasively throughout the world that they're running out of sand to make the concrete. It's, it's because there's a specific type of sand. You think, well, well, can't you just go to the Sahara Desert and and just there's all the sand you want there. That sand won't work. And it was interesting because this scientist said if you, if you look at sand under a microscope that's from like the Sahara and some of these other deserts, it's very uniform. It's very cylindrical. It's round and it doesn't stick together right. It won't have the right structural integrity when mixed into the concrete. It's, the, it's a type of sand that is only de, um, made usually for riverbeds, and it's made from a variety of different kinds of rocks, and it has a very jaggedy, irregular stuff from all kinds of different materials, and that's what works. And you think about that. Think about the church in that regard. 
We all have a different role to play. We all have a different shape, but that's what makes it work. And sometimes we all want to seem, feel like we need to all be kind of like each other, or I want to be like him or like her or whatever. That's not what works. What sticks us together is that variety of things that God has for each of us, that variety of gifts that he's given us. So on that end, if we want some kind of context of what the works of God might look like, let's look at 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. And boy, this is, when Peter wrote this, it was a long time ago. We're in the year 2021. The first thing in verse 7 says, the end of all things is at hand. That's true. (laughs) The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I mean, see that? Love, hospitality, forgiveness, charity, all for the glory of God. And this is what will get the world's attention in this era today. A meekness allows for the most radical acts of courage and sacrifice. And that's counterintuitive. But total trust in our Father, relinquishing entitlement, rights, strength, expectation, that's what sets us free and what allows God's Spirit to work through us without impediment and without boundaries. It is Jesus on the cross praying, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. It's the martyr Stephen being stoned to death, praying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's the apostle Paul in chains singing praise to God. And it's scores of happily persecuted and martyred saints who led righteous lives of charity, sacrifice, and love. If the worship team would like to come up. Are you guys doing a laugh song? That's their tradition. I don't want to break tradition. So... What I see in my life and and just looking at the world, pride is a wall. Meekness is a door. Pride tries to fit God in. Meekness fits in with God. Pride is lines drawn in the sand. Don't cross this line. That's as far as I'll go. a line drawn in the sand. Meekness is the cool tide that erases them. You know, there's lots of opportunities here in our fellowship to serve. There's lots of opportunities in our community to serve. There's lots of ways that God can use each and every one of us. So I, I've, I'm praying about those things. I think we should all be praying about those things. And um, we are a church that works. We are a church that works. And we have a lot to um, rejoice in in that. You know, and I'm very thankful for our pastor, for our leadership, for all those who do um, hear that call. But I think all of us have a space in our heart for more. So, um, I'll pray. So, Father, thank you for this day. Thank you again for your word and for 
um, just how you did work for us, how you laid down your life for us. Lord, our reasonable sacrifice is to give our lives back to you. And I pray, help us all, Lord, to have that meekness of heart and that humility of spirit to let you um, do through us what you want to do and to affect our world and to affect our community, our families, um, for good. Give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.